In a way, the super spectrum is a psyop, if we can say that. Perpetrated by an unknown super being. Possibly. <laughs> it could just be alien energy that's been floating around in space. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good morning, good evening. For the Spectral Skull Session, I am Dane. John Alva Keel, born March 25th, 1930 and died July 3rd, 2009, was an American journalist and influential UFOologist who is best known as the author of the Mothman Prophecies. But he also wrote 12 books, developing his theories about UFOs, hauntings, cryptids, and demons. Keel's works often tried to give a unified explanation for a wide range of paranormal phenomena, and his influence was far-reaching. Mothman Prophecies, published in 1975, led to Keel having a correspondence with the well-respected scientist and UFOologist Jacques Vallée. The book also became the basis for the eponymous film, starring Richard Gere, released in 2002. Keel is part of a school of thought on UFOs that rejects the idea that flying saucers are from another planet and also rejects the idea that they are concrete material objects in our everyday sense of the term. In grappling with what the alternatives could look like, Keel developed his famous ultra-terrestrial and super-spectrum hypotheses. Just what these hypotheses are, how they developed, and who they developed through Keel talking with is the subject of today's interview. Today, I'm sitting down with Ted from the Gaslight Hour. The Gaslight Hour podcast has a specialty in Fortiana, John Keel, and mid-20th century UFO lore. I decided we needed to sit down and have a conversation and talk about where these far-out ideas are coming from with a fellow traveler who is in the thick of it. Welcome to the show, Ted. Thank you for having me on. I think it's funny that you refer to me as a fellow traveler, and that's kind of a, a spy term. Oh, I hadn't we thought of it. We were just talking about that when we were uh, doing pre-show. I thought of it as, I've always thought of it as a countercultural, like, 60s and 70s type thing, but you're suggesting it has PSYOP roots. A little bit, like a fellow traveler is a type of a spy that pretends that he's one of you, like he's along for the ride with you type thing. And then, uh, you know, they turn on you at some point, or they're just an informant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I want to say I love your show, The Gaslight Hour. I appreciate it, man. Uh, don't hear that often, but we do have a lot of downloads, so somebody's listening. My only complaint is you guys should do more shows. Yeah, we, we need to do more shows, I agree. 
it's it's a scheduling thing. Like the what you experienced in the past few months trying to book us, and then you only got me. Yeah. Uh, that's a normal episode for us. I think we're all having these problems. We're all having the problem of uh, like having a job, having a job, having the pandemic, everything. What what is your view of the ultra terrestrial hypothesis? What is the ultra terrestrial hypothesis? It's almost like a a theory of everything for ufology, poltergeists, uh, cryptids, anomalistics, Fortiana, where there is this thing that we experience that is completely out of space with normal experience reality, and we try to categorize that as like UFOs. Like UFOs are their own thing. Our general explanation is they come from other planets. Uh, ghosts and poltergeists, well, that's dead people. Those are people that died and the spirits and remnants of them revisiting us. Uh, cryptids, oh, well, that's animals that we don't have any documented evidence of that are real weird, like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or extinct dinosaurs, stuff like that. Uh, but John Keel saw it as... These are manifestations of something that exists underneath the reality that we can perceive. Because humans evolved in such a way where our senses can only take in or at least filter out certain frequencies of information. So our eyes can only see so many colors, our ears can only hear so many sounds on a frequency band, uh, etc. And I think smell to a certain extent plays into that. I don't know how much touch plays into it. Uh, it, it is a theory of everything where all those things that had a category of their own are tied together as the same phenomenon. So whatever causes ghosts to happen is the same thing that causes UFOs to happen and close encounters to happen, uh, cryptid experiences to happen, where he bases it largely on his theory of the super spectrum, which is a way to pander to science. Because in the day that he wrote things like Operation Trojan Horse especially, uh, and then like Mothman Prophecies, The Eighth Tower, uh, Our Haunted Planet, which is was before both of those last two. In those days, Anomalistics and Fortiana were more of a pet thing like it's a it's a hobby to find weird stories to find weird experiences and collect those things uh, and he wanted to legitimize that and the way that he saw that it could be legitimized was through the, the same thing that Charles Fort complained about which was science he thought that if science could see that this could be legitimate that it has some kind of basis in science that people would take it seriously, that the field would come into its own thing. It would have its own field. It would be studied in academia, and people would just take it seriously in general. Uh, I think more because he wanted to get to the bottom of it than he had any, like, pet preferences to it. Uh, so the ultra-terrestrial is a component of his super-spectrum theory, essentially. But... My view on the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis is it's more or less a theory of everything like John Keel believed, but it doesn't necessarily have to have a materialistic angle to it like John Keel thought. Uh, I don't necessarily think science needs to explain things that are outside the field of science. Science is 
kind of uh, limited to materialism. And whenever you get to metaphysical things or things that can't be immediately evidenced or empirically analyzed by science, it's not necessarily materialistic. It's more phenomenological, right? Uh, so I can I stop you there? You see uh, the ultraterrestrial hypothesis as being a unified theory of the paranormal with cryptids, ghosts, and UFOs being explained as uh, ultraterrestrials, right? But then what are the ultraterrestrials? The ultraterrestrials are these entities or experiences that we have firsthand, which, you know, like Bigfoot, aliens, extraterrestrials, those type of experiences that don't fit in neatly with reality unless you have some kind of explanation that defies Ocam's razor. Like these things come from Ganymede and it took them 10 billion light years of high-speed travel to get here or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of mental gymnastics involved in coming up with ways to physicalize ultra-terrestrials into cryptids or UFOs or even the paranormal, even though I think along the lines of ufology and uh, cryptids and poltergeist stuff, like poltergeist is probably the least scientific that groups. Uh, but I think... I've, I tend to think that the ultra-terrestrials are more the manifestations themselves rather than whatever it is. Ah, because I, I thought, I mean, maybe I'm coming out of, like, uh, our haunted planet. I guess I got the impression that the uh, ultra-terrestrials were the things behind it all. The things that, that's, but I think you, you would say that's the super spectrum, right? So maybe you should tell us what the super spectrum is. Uh, again, there's another idea by John Keel, and it's it's not that you're wrong by misinterpreting Our Haunted Planet. Our Haunted Planet was an earlier book, and the super spectrum came a little bit later than the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Uh, whenever Keel was formulating a lot of these ideas in, I'd say, probably somewhere between 66 and 70, like when he started publishing stuff like Operation Trojan Horse and... Uh, our haunted planet, whenever he was formulating those ideas, the ultra-terrestrials was a blanket explanation. It was whatever these are, it's some kind of energy. The ultra-terrestrials exist in a field that they can manifest out of into perceivable reality, basically. Uh, well, that was his early ultra-terrestrial, and then it essentially morphed into the super-spectrum. So later on, whenever he was reading, writing like Mothman Prophecies and The Eighth Tower, especially The Eighth Tower, which, not to get too weird about it, but uh, they were uh, originally the same book. Uh, the Eighth Tower was material that the editors didn't want in the book because they thought it was way too long. But the super spectrum was like a, the science behind what makes the ultra-terrestrials, like there is this thing out there, and we take something from it, and it takes something from us, and that's how an experience manifests. So the ultra-terrestrials were more or less the product, and the super-spectrum was uh, the thing that made it happen. Okay, so one of I, I guess I thought that there was a period in his writings when John Keel thought that we might be dealing with a... Uh, like a physical, another race that lived among us here on the planet? Yeah, that I think 
that was probably more early. And I think, like, he was uh, originally, like, especially in Our Hound Planet, he was a huge proponent of breakaway civilization theory. So he was kind of an early proponent of that, even though it wasn't a new idea. I couldn't tell you who came up with the, the earlier versions, but you get Atlantis from that. Or you get low from that. Stuff like uh, weird lost islands that nobody has found yet. Because in the 60s, that was plausible. Nowadays, we got satellites. Uh, but he thought that there might be some explanation to a lot of the weird stuff that's happening. Because there was a super advanced civilization in ancient times uh, that went into hiding for some reason. Which people still believe on a smaller scale. I haven't heard anything about breakaway civilizations in a couple of years, but it used to be a topical thing on like Coast to Coast AM and uh, some of the more popular conspiracy content of the past 10 years. He went through a, a number of different models to try to make sense of a wide range of paranormal phenomena. And you're saying the consistent theme in the evolution of those models was he was trying to find uh, scientific underpinning. So first he's like, well, maybe there's a breakaway civilization. At least that's a material thing. And so maybe there's like uh, these advanced people living among us and they're duping us into believing in ghosts and UFOs and cryptids because they're... I would almost say that he believed in a breakaway civilization as a thing that was separate from the more weird stuff. And uh, in the earlier days, it was more the breakaway civilizations were influenced by something. Could be ultra-terrestrials, could be something else but i think ultra terrestrials is a good enough blanket statement for what he was trying to delve into uh and it's not that he stopped believing the breakaway civilization thing it just became more and more of a separate thing and less less emphasized like the breakaway civilization could still be a thing they still could be hiding uh but it's kind of immaterial because ultimately they were influenced by ultra terrestrials like all the megalithic structures in on the planet that were built around the same time, they they were all influenced by whatever the super spectrum is, question mark? Oh, okay. Yeah. So later he folds that breakaway civilization theory into the super spectrum by saying, even if there was a breakaway civilization, they're not the ultimate origin of these uh, manifestations. Even they themselves are victims of the manifestations. I think Operation Trojan Horse was the earliest book that he wrote that whatever the ultra-terrestrials are, and this was pre-Super Spectrum days, uh, whatever they are, whatever that energy is, it has the ability to get into our minds and manipulate our minds. Just mind control from whatever that entity is. Kind of a possession. And he even explicitly talked about possession in that book. So... Uh, Operation Trojan Horse. I think he probably talked about possession in most of the following books a after that because he already kind of has established that whatever this is, it can influence us to the degree of basically having control over our minds. And he has this, um, this really interesting view of religion. Uh, as a, At times he seems to be more sympathetic than like pro-science type people to religious ideas because he even calls his it might be the mothman prophecies where he talks about how all these phenomena these manifestations they're uh, they're like something out of demonology 
And I've always wondered if he was ty- like trying to rope demonology into his super spe- spectrum or ultra-terrestrial ter- ultra theory. Sorry. Uh, I was always wondering if he was trying to rope that into what his theory of everything was. Or if he was saying, like, this is stuff that went on in biblical times. Or we have historical historical evidence of possession happening and demons coming to visit and succubi draining men of energy and things like that. Uh, but I think a lot of that was pretty common across him and Jacques Vallée. So that leads me to my next main question, which was, so I know that uh, Vallée wrote sort of the seminal work on the idea that there's a controlling influence working on humanity and that you can trace that controlling influence through UFOs back to uh, little people from sort of medieval era and even back before that. And that was Passport to Magonia. That came out in 1969. And then I know Mothman Prophecies doesn't come out until 1975, although he must have written it before then. I think he had a lot of the ideas for it before then, but he never had any reason to publish until people started bugging him about it. Well, Operation Trojan Horse came out in 1970. So in 1970, do you think that Kiel has all the elements of the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis firmly in place, along with the idea that these things are, are controlling us? That's pretty hard to say. Uh, there, so when you mentioned that there was an evolution to his theor, theorizing, I guess is a good word for it. Uh, one of the earliest articles that I read for him was from him was in uh, Andrew Colvin, I think, was the guy that's been making compilation books of a bunch of his old writings and articles. He made a rough draft of this sci-fi novel that he was planning on writing which would have been probably mid-60s, maybe even like early mid-60s. Uh, and he was writing about this hypothetical energy that existed at the creation of the universe. And this energy had not necessarily sentience, but some kind of awareness of its existence. And over the period of millions or billions of years, it slowly began to gain sentience. And this energy field eventually would happen upon a planet and whenever it comes upon this planet it slowly learns to manipulate matter because it's got all the time in the world or universe if you like uh but essentially it's it's this god thing that he it's almost an explanation for what god is that he he was developing into a novel uh where this thing would float through space come upon a planet start terraforming manipulating the planet uh, maybe even creating a life on that planet, and then in continually expanding throughout the universe at the same time. And uh, eventually it would get to, like, Earth, and weird stuff would happen because it's sci-fi. Uh, but you see a lot of components of the ultra-terrestrial theory or even the super-spectrum theory there where there is this energy field that's not not technically perceivable to us. Uh, it it sounds real wild. So in a way, I think a lot of his theories are based on science fiction, but he wants it to be recognized by science. And he uses, uh, especially in his later works, he kind of morphs past the ultra terrestrial theory as like its own thing and moves on to 
All right, ultra terrestrials are puppets and nothing else. Uh, they're not sentient. They're not aware. They just are. And this thing in the super spectrum is what manifests those out into perceivable reality. And the super spectrum is essentially a an expansion of that novel that he was writing in the mid-60s. But there was a lot of content in the 60s about alternative theories to paranormal phenomenon. And UFOs fell into paranormal phenomenon at the time. Uh, I would almost guarantee you that John Keel read Passport to Magonia as he, at least as he was writing Operation Trojan Horse, if not before. Because John Keel was a good writer, and I wouldn't doubt that even though he was already had his fingers in a lot of pies in the paranormal community, or at least the UFO community, in like the mid to late 60s, uh, a lot of the latter part of the 60s, especially after the Mothman t files, and I don't know if he had, I'm sure he had files. I haven't seen them. I don't know how to access them. But after the Mothman stuff in West Virginia and Point Pleasant, he probably came on some of Jacques Vallée's material, or at least Passport to Magonia, and that heavily influenced stuff like Operation Trojan Horse specifically, and maybe even Our Haunted Planet to a less extent, uh, because Our Haunted Planet was more, what if there was a breakaway civilization, but also with my science fiction concepts of the mid-60s, that failed novel that I was working on. And then it would continue to evolve until to the year of the Garuda, which eventually split up to the Mothman Prophecies in the Eighth Tower. Which, I mean, after the Eighth Tower, he wrote Disneyland of the Gods. It's not, like, it's not required reading if you're looking into ultra-terrestrial stuff. It's a lot of rehashed content. There's a real good intro, that's it. Okay. I think I've taken a look at Disneyland of the Gods, but have never really gone deep into it. I think the two things by Keel I really know well are the Mothman Prophecies and uh, the Eighth Tower, which I read as the Cosmic Question. I think that's the British version, right? So I heard uh, John Keel on Art Bell's Coast to Coast on an Ar oh, Coast to Coast archive last night. And um, uh, John Keel mentioned that Jacques Vallée mentions him in some of his books. Apparently they had a correspondence going on. I don't know to what extent that might have been exaggerated. I don't think it's a secret that uh, John Keel may have exaggerated a lot. Uh, I don't think that delegitimizes anything that he writes per se, even though the Mothman prophecies is clearly dramatized in the way that like fictional biographies are dramatized because if anybody read a true-to-life, 100% accurate biography of anybody that's historical, it, they'd get dehydrated. That stuff's just dry. Like like I was saying previously, whenever you, uh, or at least pre-show, a lot of stuff in ufology, especially in between the years 50 and 70, but I'd even go past that. I, have, I haven't read a whole lot of stuff in ufology that's engaging reading. Uh, but, but John Keel stuff's pretty engaging. And I don't know how much of that is the fact that he's a competent writer or how much of it's because he dramatized it. But 
I'd say as far as artistic liberty goes, Mothman Prophecies is the book that he takes the most artistic liberties with. Okay, just based on your sense that it's written in a dramatic way. Well, it is, and uh, I, I think his other books, especially like Operation Trojan Horse and uh, Our Haunted Planet, those two books are pretty example-driven. They're very Fortean in the, the sense that when Charles Fort wrote the Book of the Damned, he gave a lot of examples and then gave a little commentary and then gave a lot, of, a lot of examples and gave a little commentary. John Keel in those two early books would color some of that a little bit, but it wasn't dramatized to the extent that uh, Mothman Prophecies was, if that makes sense. Like, he kept a lot of the accounts that he found in those books pretty accurate. He didn't want them to stray too far from what they were. Okay. That's very interesting. So, uh, also, can you tell us about Charles Fort? So he's sort of a godfather of uh, of anomalous materials research. Is that correct? Yeah. So Charles Fort, if I'm remembering right, it's been a while since I looked into him at all. Uh, he was late 1800s, early 1900s, if I remember right, as far as his time period. But anyways, he had a boring job. He read a lot of books. He read a lot of newspapers. Uh, he had access to an archive somehow. Uh, but he would get a lot of newspapers in the mail, and he would clip weird articles like, uh, frogs fell out of the sky in a place in Scotland today. That was weird. Uh, but then he would find corresponding evidence of frogs falling from the sky in the same place in Scotland the year before or several years before in a row at the same time. Uh, but he he collected articles like that. And Falls was his big thing. He had some other stuff about like weird meteorites, like uh, astronomical stuff mm-hmm. happening. Like what was it? Low. He was talking about the Leonids making an, an appearance, and this uh, astronomer recognized them as Leonids. So he said, "Oh well, we can expect the Leonids to come in at this time." So. They were just doing astronomy and predicting when they would fall again. Uh, When the year came, they didn't fall. And he's like, oh, well, I miscalculated. They're going to be this year. So it's it's like the prophecy thing. The end of the world's coming. I just did the math wrong. Okay. But he did weird stories like that. Uh, His book, The Book of the Damned, he did a lot of... uh, he it was just example after example it was brute force he just posted a lot of stuff verbatim from the collection of articles and clippings that he found from newspapers in there and he made the book of it and put a lot of commentary in there that was really interesting about this idea of intermediacy intermediacy i guess this idea that everything transitions into everything else mm. Uh, One of the biggest concepts that I guess is popular nowadays from the Book of the Damned is the Super Sargasso Sea, which was his explanation for Mysterious Falls, because science always had its own explanation. And with John Keel, he recognized how stupid all their explanations were. And that was a huge part of the Book of the Damned was, look how many times science has been wrong. Right. Charles Fort. Charles Fort's... You said John Keel, but you meant Fort, right? Yeah, Fort. Charles Fort. I'm sorry. Uh, but Charles Fort had this uh, this way of looking at science and saying, look how many times they've been wrong. How can you trust them? 
I have a more interesting idea on how to explain this. Which is why you get things like the Super Sargasso Sea, if that's how you say it. And uh, Super Geometry, which both of those ideas, the way I interpret them from Charles Fort is there's literally this floating island way up in the atmosphere that junk collects on and then they toss it over the side. Uh, which the alternative science explanation was a whirlwind whipped, whipped up whatever fell out of the sky up into the atmosphere. The winds carried it to wherever it fell, and then it fell. Yeah, so like everything from, I've heard of frogs, I've heard of um, jellyfish, I've heard of uh, fish, snakes. I think I've heard about blood falling from the sky. There was a weird strip in Kentucky that he wrote about where pieces of meat fell out of the sky which is very strange considering that most of the things that fall out of the sky are like whole things. They're not meat, like the innards. It's usually like an entire fish, an entire frog, a big old ball of ice, stuff like that. Or like you said, blood. And I think we've even had recent things that have been mistaken as blood. Yeah, I mean, any kind of... Yeah. At least as far as like 12 years ago. Must have been a whirlwind at a food color factory, right? Right, yeah. Whirlwind at the food coloring factory. Get some Easter egg tie-dye tornadoes. Yeah. So it sounds like a Charles Fort initiated a particular like style, which was to do anti-science, to crit- critique science by collecting journalistic evidence. So he was... You know, he collected what reports other people had done. He wasn't doing science himself, but he would collect, you know, newspaper clippings and book clippings and then put them together to make a case Mm -hmm. that was uh, critical of the establishment. And then he would put forward these sort of uh, harebrained ideas like a big C. He couldn't have taken those seriously, right? So my my take with Fort is he was the earliest form of a shit poster possible. Mm. He took ideas that people think are good and tells you why they're bad. But instead of coming up with a competent replacement, they come up with something that's just insane. Yeah. Which is what he did. Like the Super Sargasso Sea. You're telling me there's a flying island a couple miles up in the atmosphere? Uh, But, I mean, he did stuff like that. He had in low this theory that we don't look at stars. We're not looking at actual stars. What, what's happening is we exist in this eggshell, and what you think is stars is light bleeding in through the pores of the eggshell. Mm. Uh, stuff like that. He even, I think one of his, one of the things that a lot of ufologists point to whenever they're talking about Fort is the line of, we are property. And what he meant by that when he was writing about that line was, what if a lot of this stuff that's falling is passing ships in the atmosphere dropping off their trash? Hmm. So, you, or even he said there was some kind of spaceship battle, and I don't think he said spaceship, but like flying ships that had battles in, in space, and what we're catching is just remnants of that battle. Like all the blood, all the weird rocks and lead or whatever. It's all just remnants of whatever that battle was in, in space. Uh, but I really liked his writing style and it definitely influenced Keel. Yeah, you could see all kinds of influences now. So, um, so the, being a reporter, mm-hmm. uh, having a sort of like critical idiosyncratic take, 
that's at odds with the scientific establishment. As well, you can see, uh, like, throwing out hypotheses that are not to be taken seriously, that are throwaway hypotheses. Because, yeah. I mean, it sounds like that's what Keel was doing, too. Although maybe he took his hypotheses a little more seriously, but it seems like from every book he's just got a new one. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is to think about whether he actually believes it or doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of his articles suggest that, to a certain extent, he believes at least the ultra-terrestrial theory and the superspectrum. I think he believes that there is something out there making weird things happen, and he just wants to put a name on it. Because we're not going to be able to find out what it is. Yeah. I don't think humans have the capacity to figure out what's behind all this stuff. might change in 100 years, but... Do you think he just believes in reporting? He believes that, you know, you can take you can take a newspaper clipping at face value. And then where do you go from there? You have all these uh, clippings, all, all this stuff that what the scientists want to do, at least what Charles Fort and John Keel seem to be saying, what the scientists want to do is they want to just look the other way. They don't want to confront. Well, they also want to make unknown things known within the bounds of what they already know. Mm. That I think that's one of the biggest problems in science that that Charles Ford originally pointed out, and then even to a certain extent, Keel pointed out. But it's conversely, <laughs> the superspectrum theory was built on identifying a lot of traits of experiences and trying to bracket that to existence existing science. Uh, a lot of the talk about. UFOs coming into reality, like they're phasing in, uh, they're almost red shifting in and blue shifting out. So there's this ultraviolet and infrared uh, plausibility there when when they're color shifting in and out. And there's the, we mentioned in pre-show, the smell of sulfur. That's common not only in men in black sightings, but there it's common in a lot of UFO experiences and in demonology. Uh, someone wrote an entire book on that, and I can't remember his name for the life of me for some reason, Joshua Cutchin, uh, called The Brimstone Deceit. Hmm. He wrote an entire book just on the base of smells that come out of experiences. John Keel's idea of this the super spectrum manifests things into existence from something uh, because he he had more of a, or at least wanted to have a more materialistic view of it. His idea was they're getting raw materials from something in the super spectrum. Don't know how they get there. They're probably harvesting stuff like cattle, dogs, people. That's where you get disappearances and animal deaths and stuff like that. They're manifesting these raw materials into reality, but they have a very short half-life. And while these things are decomposing and dissolving back into the super spectrum, that's where the smell comes from. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's he's always got... He, he tried to come up with as much of an ex- explanation of the physical uh, manifestations of these experiences as he could. Whatever could be considered physical evidence, he tried to have an explanation for it to try to legitimize it, at least in the Eighth Tower. Yeah, he's trying to frame things in a materialistic way, right? So there's a material basis for the... Well, that's important to note because people are running around calling this stuff space poltergeists. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, a point that I'm taking from you is that Kiel is at odds with the scientific consensus in the 60s and 70s and I guess into the 80s. But um, And he's trying to frame it with their tools. He really doesn't see these things at, at their core. He's not trying to say that these things are spiritual or demonic. Um, he's trying to wrap it up in a way that ultimately can be explained to a materialist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm at the same time, I wonder how much Kiel is a materialist. Like, the way that the Eighth Tower is written, you would expect him to be a materialist. But at the same time, he had this idea that whatever the super spectrum was, it was outside of material existence. Mm -hmm. It's confusing. You could reread that book a bunch and get a different interpretation every time you read it, depending on where you're at in life. It's like the Bible. It seemed like he was trying to build a metaphor off of uh, electromagnetism and audio frequencies. Yeah. There are a lot of weird phenomena that come out of messing around with waves, right? Yeah. And I think that's a huge basis of it. I think, I guess I saw him as saying like, well, what if in addition to there being uh, an electromagnetic spectrum and there being an audio medium through which sound vibrations are communicated. Like, mm -hmm. what if there's just, like, another um, dimension of spectral activity? And they're waves, some kind of other waves that we don't know about. But these waves interact with other kinds of waves and with material things. Yeah, and personally, that's, that's how I kind of could get behind the sp super spectrum nowadays. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that that's what Kiel thought. Okay. I think Kiel thought the super spectrum was an ex a sort of extension of the perceivable spectrum. He thought whatever was above and below that, that's the super spectrum. Oh, okay. So one view of it is that like these things are they're just like ultraviolet light. Yeah. It's not necessarily that the super spectrum is the entity creating it. Like whatever entity creates all paranormal activity, it resides within spectrums that are beyond the perceivable spectrums of human uh, organs, I guess. Oh, okay. Human senses. Because I got some and, impression from the cosmic question that uh, at some point it seemed like he was suggesting that there's like a mindless, not lack of intentionality to these manifestations. Yeah. And that they're just yeah. like kind of like an, the product of an ebbing and flowing of a, of a non-sentient energy. Just like things just happen because the super spectrum's waxing and waning. Yeah, and in a way, that's that's kind of what he believed. But I I always wonder how much he's saying that that's more the ultra-terrestrials, like the manifestations themselves. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know if he... I almost think he thinks the super spectrum is about the same deal. He almost describe Well, he does describe things a lot as the, the great phonograph in the sky, which is just a stand-in for whatever God would be, right? It's this thing replaying, playing something over and over on repeat, and people are perceiving it differently because, well, it's going on repeat. So time has to pass. So different generations have come. Different technology has evolved. So we have a different vocabulary and vernacular to describe whatever experience this giant phonograph in the sky is giving us. Uh, there's a pattern, but the experiences are different because of where we are at that point we're experiencing them. Okay. Yeah, so there's uh, they take something from us and we, we take something from them. I think that's how you put it earlier. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that that might have been pre-show, but like my personal take on what the ultra terrestrials are, it's they are kind of these puppet things. They're the puppet things because we're interacting something we're interacting with something in our environment. I'm not going to say reality. I'm going to say the environment. Whatever that is in the environment that is already there, it's not us, but it's there. It's pulling things out of us and then putting things back in us. And the things it's putting back in us are experiences. And whether those be legitimate physical experiences or they're hallucinations, it's happening because we're interacting with whatever that is in the environment. I don't want to say it's an energy. I don't want to say that it has anything materialist at all because I don't know. I don't know how to measure that. Yeah. You know? Uh, but I think John Keel, John Keel probably would have disagreed with that because he wanted to legitimize that as a science. And that's not a scientific thing to say that you can just have weird experiences because there's something out there pulling experiences out of you. Are you familiar with the term scientism? Uh, a little bit. That's that's more science as a religion type deal. Yeah. So it's the idea. I mean, here's my here's my take on it. So we can just define it operationally so we're both just on the same page even if we're not corresponding to anything anyone else is saying out there but my take on scientism is um it's there are people who are sympathetic to think they're steeped in science and um but they're not scientists for the most part and what they tend to be are people who have taken the general gist of contemporary science and they've turned it into like a philosophy Mm -hmm. or maybe more like a religion, as you put it, where they can't question certain assumptions about the nature of reality. Like one of those assumptions might be everything that's real is a material thing. So it's ultimately going to be explained in terms of physics. Mm -hmm. I think another one might be um, whatever the scientists say, that is the right view to have on questions about pu public policy or... Um, you know, or even how we should live our lives. Because scientists are priests, obviously. Yeah. So it, it, but the point is like, so scientism is like a, it's a degenerate thing. Not degenerate, it's kind of uh, unfair. I would call it degenerate. <laughs> like science is this process of asking questions, trying to explain empirical data, um, forming a hypothesis, testing your hypothesis, then mm -hmm. subjecting your, your, experimental evidence to public scrutiny and then yeah. people criticizing you and people fighting and then it all repeats again and it iterates and iterates and iterates it's a, it's really not a philosophy it's just a it's a practice yeah so these people there are people though who are like they just take the current state of the science too seriously mm -hmm. and anyway so um they make it a worldview and it's not it's just a thing that's out there like stuff happens because this yeah that's our current model. That's what we have to go on. It doesn't make any assumptions on politics or religion or philosophy. It's just that's a thing that happens because it does, and this is why. That's our model. Right. So I was wondering uh, if you think that John Keel maybe fell victim to some scientism. Being a reporter, you know, and not really somebody trained in scientific practice. Well, like Valet was, I don't know if you know about Valet. I feel like I just saw an article about Valet come, came out, I think it was uh, this month saying, like, Ballet still doesn't know what UFOs are. Like, his perspective is still like, I just don't know what's going on. 
Like I'm tracking all this empirical yeah. phenomena. And um, and the closest he's ever gotten to say what it is is his idea of, uh, I don't know how to word this quite right. It's a control mechanism. Yeah, I think he doesn't he like, say control system. Yeah, it's a way for there's something out there that puts things in the environment for us to pick up, perceive, do something with, and then. Because we've done something with that experience, that experience goes back out into the environment as feedback into a control system loop to where it reprocesses information to act on future influence loops, I guess. So it's just this cycle of we're putting out a stimulus, getting you to react, your reaction's putting another stimulus into the environment, the control system accepts it again processes it, and then acts on that information, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that's my impression, too. Yeah, that Valet's most confident about whatever these UFO things are, um, they are part of an ancient process of um, influencing the human race. So, yeah, like you say, indirectly. So it's not the con- it's not that they don't come out of the sky and tell us what they're thinking. It's like it's actually the way we react to their appearances and manifestations. That seems yeah, to be. Yeah, I think yeah. his metaphor was it's a thermostat. And if you look at a thermostat, if you set it at 70 degrees, if, uh, if it's cold outside, if the temperature inside the house drops below 70 degrees, the temperature or the, the heater kicks on and raises it right back up to 70 degrees. Uh, I don't know to what extent he thinks it's literally like a thermostat, like whatever human belief is or human action on a grand scale is. I don't know what metrics he thinks it's trying to influence, uh, but it's mostly what I take from it. It's it's culture. But I don't think it's necessarily working the way a thermostat's working. I don't think that it's set to a certain cultural frequency. And whenever it deviates so much, there's a bunch of feedback to get it back on track. Uh, I almost think he thinks it is to guide us to a certain point of culture with some kind of end game, which to an extent, at least whenever he was writing a lot of his books on that, uh, especially like The Invisible College, it was, he thought it was to get some kind of cultural end game, so there was some kind of intention behind it. It just implies that there's intention behind it. We just don't know what. I think it was also uh, Messengers of Deception that he mentioned that as his alternative to the UFO extraterrestrial theory. Okay. That it's... um. That it's a control system. Uh, okay, so... Th- in in Messengers of Deception, towards the end of it, he had his uh, list of theorems, or stratagems as he called them, mm-hmm. uh, where he listed out the most common explanations for what's going on here. Uh, and he did the nuts and bolts UFO theory. Uh, he, I think he even mentioned why he didn't like it. I don't remember what it was. Uh, another one was the uh, cult theory, which was literally John Keel's ultra-terrestrial theory. So he was just dunking on John Keel for a few paragraphs. Uh, and then because he's a scientist and the control system theory was very scientific because 
he didn't plagiarize it, but he was very influenced by a guy named, uh, I think, I don't want to say the name because I don't remember, but I think it was uh, somebody. Anyways, it was oh. a colleague in the Invisible College. Oh, was it? Who, who was a, I want to say he was a psychologist, but he might have been a, uh, ooh, what's that term? I don't remember, but it had to do with psychology. He was in that field. I want to say his first name was William. Could be wrong. But he wrote this. Uh, he wrote these this book about control systems, and it had some really interesting ideas about higher level control systems. Like you've got bodily functions where it's sensory inputs down to the things that happen before the input of touch happens. When you touch a table. The thing that happens before you notice touch, that's a control system. That's a, a mechanism, a feedback loop that eventually makes it to your brain. And you broke it down from the smallest all the way to the biggest known, which was more political and government machines. But then the interesting thing was whenever he theorized control systems beyond political, state, religion, he said, theoretically, there could be control systems beyond what is known. We don't know how to measure that yet, but it could be something in the environment or something that just exists that's influencing humans. So everything that happens on Earth is like part of one huge organism, essentially, that has its own control system. And I think ballet borrowed a lot of those ideas because it's a cool one. It's a really interesting idea. And he just tied it to anomalistics essentially especially ufos that's awesome i think uh the only other stratagem that he had in there was the natural theory which was ufos are bunk this can all be explained naturally which is extremely unpopular because it's dumb and boring the error theory it's all an error yeah maybe the best way to explain ufos is people are just hallucinating or something right that's the yeah or weather inversions Temperature inversions, I think, was a was a was that classes. So wait, can we go back though quickly, just to consolidate that thought? Because what you said that was really interesting to me that I hadn't known was that valet is being influenced by somebody whose whose work was to create a unified theory of like feedback mechanisms, and they were able to relate the way our nervous system works to the way governments work, like and the way economics work, and then to go further and say, well, there could be other levels of feedback that were embedded within. I don't know if I would say that he was working on a unified theory. Uh, I remember the word that I was looking for, and it's a cyberneticist. I don't know if he was a cyberneticist or uh, a psychologist, but he studied behavior and he studied the nervous system, obviously. Uh, but the, the thing that was interesting was at the beginning of the book, he said, there are two schools of thought in psychology, and it's nature and nurture. And I'm going to bring both of those together and tell you how they can work in unison. Because there is, like, he, he's implying that there's no such thing as determinism here. There's a limited amount of determinism, and that's your physical limitations as a human being. Uh, but you have choice, and you basically receive information from the environment, and you have the choice to act on that information if it's within your physical ability, right? Uh, so he, he starts off the book that way. Uh, but like I said, he starts at the smallest control system saying, this is the feedback loop at this level. 
I'm going to explain it to you and make some models. And he does make models, and it's a highly technical book if you're not familiar with uh, control theory goes. I think the book itself is called The Control Theory of Perception, if anybody wants to read it. But he starts at the lower level and works up to higher and higher levels of control in the human body until it goes into, like, the family unit and the state unit. And then, like I said, theoretically beyond that. And he had really interesting ideas about uh, perception in general and drug use and things like that. There, You can read all the technical stuff in there if you want to. It's not easy reading because it takes time to understand what he's saying and what he's putting together, even with the, with the models in there, if you're not familiar with the field. So I'm not saying go out and get the control theory of perception because it's going to explain Kiel or Valet's work. It's not. It's not an easy book to read, but there's a lot of supplemental things at the end of the chapters and throughout the chapters where he's talking about like what happens when you use certain psychedelics, it's not that your mind is expanding. What's happening is your mind is actually contracting. Your your mind is unable to process information and it's it's unable to do the feedback loop properly, right? Uh, so it's almost like your brain is relaxing. It's letting more information in and not filtering enough out for you to make sense of it. So what you're basically doing is just getting atom bombed whenever you do certain psychedelics. You're getting an information overload. You're not expanding anything. Uh, now, what that has to do with your actual thought process at the time of it, I don't know how the inputs of the physical environment that aren't being filtered out play into the thought processes that lead to people having like ego deaths. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a neurologist or whatever. But he had interesting ideas like that. And like I said, whenever you get beyond the government control system, it's highly theoretical and I it's it's cool. It's really cool. Yeah, to to look at political systems as being in some ways like nervous systems. That's really cool. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's not even just that the political system has a, it does have a feedback loop, but it's even, you don't break certain laws necessarily because you don't want to face the consequences. That's a feedback loop. If you break the consequences, the the system itself acts on your actions and reacts and does things to you. And then you're in jail or wherever, or in the, the court system, Back in the feedback loop, there are systems in place to handle crime and, uh, to a certain extent, fix people's thoughts and influence people's opinions. And whenever you go a little bit higher than the state level, that's whenever it really gets into propaganda and stuff. Yeah. And then the highest level of propaganda is coming to us from another dimension. It's these... Uh, <laughs> Possibly. It's the super spectrum, right? So Yeah. In a way, the super spectrum is a psyop, if we can say that. In a way. Perpetrated by an unknown super being. Possibly. <laughs> it could just be alien energy that's been floating around in space, as Keel put it in his unpublished book. Okay, so he, yeah, he flirts with the idea that there's no intelligence behind it. He flirts with the idea that there could be an intelligence behind it. So he's not very clear, but he is very clear that there's something acting on us. I would almost say, like, he was... Whenever you asked about valet, now that I'm thinking about it, 
like the later stuff in the super spectrum ties in real well with the control theory hypothesis that valet come came up with because he became less set on the idea that whatever what the super spectrum was had any kind of sentience that it was just a thing that acted upon information which is what the control theory was so at least to a certain extent if you cut this the the eighth tower down to the the basic ideas of what he's trying to get across it it could be interpreted at the same level of valet's uh control theory even though valet doesn't take it that way obviously yeah oh and it could just be uh he he doesn't necessarily think that um the super spectrum is devoid of sentience but maybe that's just not important so it's not important to posit a sentience behind it what's important is to emphasize its uh, interactive nature the way it interacts with us yeah yeah, I think there's a, at least a grain of uh, suggestion there that if it has any sentience, how would we know anyways? Because we're not it. And it's acting very irrationally. And that's how he uses that the Eighth Tower metaphor. It, it's a metaphor in there uh, towards the end of the book. He suggests that he ties it kind of back to our haunted planet with breakaway civilizations. And this is where things get a little wild. This completes part one of the interview with Ted from the Gaslight Hour. I will be uploading part two probably next week.